Welcome to the Empowered Christian Woman Podcast. My name is Jeanette Cochran. I'm a pastor, women's leadership coach, and self-proclaimed Jesus feminist. I'm on a mission to inspire and equip women everywhere to own our voice, speak up, create, and lead wherever God calls. Because when women rise, everyone wins. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm so grateful that you've tuned in today. Today, here in Maryland, where I am, it is frigid cold. It's low 20s, just bone-chilling temperatures. And so I'm ready for sunshine, warm temperatures. I'm already dreaming about my summer vacations. Maybe you are listening from a warm, sunny state. And if so, I am so jealous. I'm just ready for winter to be over and spring to be here. Despite the fact that it is freezing outside, I have a conversation today that I believe will warm your heart. I have an incredible conversation with Kim Sorrell, who is an empowered Christian woman leader. Kim is a speaker, an entrepreneur. She's the director of a humanitarian organization. And Kim is also a breast cancer survivor. But even more than that, in 2009, while she was battling breast cancer, her husband and the love of her life received a pancreatic cancer diagnosis, and six weeks later, he was gone. So during her cancer treatment, she lost her husband, and she had to finish her treatment alone. As many of you know, I am also a breast cancer survivor, and I cannot even imagine the incredible pain and how much more resilience and strength it would take to walk through and recover from that while losing a spouse. But Kim has an amazing perspective. And so we talked about that. How do you reframe your perspective? How do you rise up? And how does she view her life today? How was she able to go forward? Also, Kim is the author of two books. One book that we talk about extensively here is a book that she authored called Love Is, where she took a year-long experiential journey to try and understand what love is by living out 1 Corinthians chapter 13 of the Bible that really explains all of the characteristics of what love is and really helps us to see that love is not a feeling or an emotion, but it's an action. So she has some fascinating wisdom and some funny stories to share to really help us uncover what she learned about love and the incredible power of living in love every day and perhaps even the power to transform our world. If you resonate with anything that Kim shares today and you want to find out more about her, you can find her at kimsorrell.com. That's Kim, S-O-R-R-E-L-L-E.com. So wherever you are, grab a cup of tea or a warm beverage and join me for this conversation with Kim Sorrell. Welcome, Kim, to the podcast. I'm so thrilled to be able to have this conversation with you today. You are an inspiring leader. Why don't you just begin by sharing a little bit about yourself? Tell us who you are and a little bit of your background. Sure. Yeah, I am an entrepreneur. I started my first business right out of high school. 
and have had several businesses through the years, some that I've had from the beginning and others that I developed and sold. And so I've been in a lot of a lot of different businesses. I run a nonprofit organization. Uh, I was married to the greatest guy ever, the man of my dreams, and um, have five kids and 11 grandkids and a puppy, Arlo, who's the cutest thing ever. And uh, so, yeah, life is good. Tell us a little bit about where you lead in business or in your community or ministry, a little bit of your just leadership journey. Sure. Yes. Well, um, in business, you know, I'm general manager, CEO, you know, depending on the type of business. And so uh, leadership has always been a thing for me, Uh, even in high school, you know, class officer and student council, that kind of thing. It just seems to be inborn or whatever it is. And uh, I tend to take over. Like if I join something, I don't know if you have that same issue, but pretty soon you're leading the pack. Yeah. And uh, I I have that um, too. And my nonprofit organization, we're a partnering organization. We work with people in their own country who have a passion, a mission, a vision to do something to help people in their own country. And just need someone to walk alongside. And so uh, in that, we develop business plans or um, materials or build a building or kind of whatever they need to do, always planning towards self-sustainability. And so um, medical clinics and water projects and schools, things like that. And I know a part of your story, you were also a breast cancer survivor. and. Um, and then lost your husband while you were battling breast cancer as well. So talk about that. And how did you heal and push through that? Because clearly you were able to rise from the ashes. You've done so much incredible work even beyond that. So tell us a little bit about how did you heal from that and really get over that that trauma and that adversity pushing through that? Yeah, it was a crazy time uh, because I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And four months after I was, my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and passed away six weeks later. And I'll tell you, it was a wonderful actual, uh, with my husband, pancreatic cancer is one of the worst, you know, it's a, it's a horrible diagnosis and no survival rate really. And, um, but they thought he'd live about a year, you know, so we just stayed home and enjoyed ourselves and watched cash cab and I don't know, you know, played gin rummy, you know, whatever, and had a great time. And, but our prayer walking out of the doctor's office after he was diagnosed and our prayer all the way through was Lord heal him. Like you did the blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, or the ultimate grand healing that is heaven, but please don't let him suffer. Please don't let him suffer. And we had this great six weeks together And then on a Sunday morning, he woke up. I woke up because he was awake and in pain. And I called the hospice nurse. And before that, his pain was very well managed. It never was out of control. It was never an issue. And uh, I called the hospice nurse. She was there in seconds, it felt like. And he was sitting on the edge of the bed. And I was holding him from behind because I didn't want him to fall off. But laying down hurt his abdomen. And so... He, that's why he was sitting. And so I was just hanging on to him. And 
the hospice nurse was on the phone calling for a hospital bed, a commode, a, you know, whatever medical equipment. And I said to her, do I call my family? You know, do I call my kids? What do I do? And she's, no, no, no. You've got lots of time. You've got lots of time. Are you sure? Because, you know, he's what and she's no, I I'm promised you've got, you know, weeks, if not months, you've got a lot of time. And I'm thinking, okay. Um, but then I could just feel his agony. I could just feel how horrible it was for him in that moment. And and I I just whispered in his ear and I said, baby, just go. And he never took another breath. And it was such mercy, such mercy, a true gift from God. You know, like it stinks for me, but how great for him because nobody wants to suffer. And I sure didn't want to have him suffer, see him suffer, you know, and just, you don't want that for anybody. And so I was so grateful that our prayer was answered and in a, in a beautiful way. And, um, and there was no doubt that it was an answer to prayer. It was quick. You know, the six weeks was way too quick, but uh, I think no matter how much time we would have had together, it would have been too quick. But it was a weird time because I, I felt like I had to be strong for my kids. And so I was trying to do that. Uh, my husband helped me coach and we worked together. And it's kind of funny because he worked for me. I was, they were my businesses and he came in and, and, but we worked great together and I was the coach and he assisted so that he could, we could be together more and it worked out great. And um, so there were so many people that just loved him so much. He was just the sweetest guy. And, uh, and so to lose him was losing, not just him, but the dream. You know, I thought I had my life laid out, right? I mean, you, you plan on growing old together. You know, I was, I was 47 years old, you know, never in my wildest dreams did I expect to be 47 and without my husband. And so I had to figure out what life would mean. But meanwhile, I was still going through my cancer stuff. And so uh, I had that going, you know, that I had to put some focus on as well as losing him and how are my kids doing and whatever. And um, at the end of, of that year, but, but first though, when I would have people say to me, after I was diagnosed with cancer, I don't know if this happened to you, but people would say, why you, why you, you know, you do so much, why you? And my response was always, well, why not me? Why, why would I be immune? You know, who am I to be immune? You know, I, I don't believe that God is up there going, you know what? You stole that pack of gum in seventh grade. So I'm giving you breast cancer when you're 47 years old. You know, I just don't think it happens like that. So nobody's immune and it comes out of the blue when it comes and you just hope that it never does. And, but one thing that I realized during the whole time is that there are things we don't control. We have zero control over. I'd never pick cancer. I'd never pick cancer for my husband. I'd never pick losing my husband. I had no control over those things, none. But there are things I do control. I control how happy I choose to be. I can control how much joy I want in my life. I can control 
what I want to do that I want to do more with life. I can control that I want to honor my husband by truly living life, not staying in the grief. I think so often people stay in the grief feeling like it's dishonoring to be happy again, you know, dishonoring to laugh again and and be fully involved in life again. And I, I just think the opposite is true. You're honoring your person when you go and live for both of you, you know, and, and show he was a great guy. Like he wouldn't want me down and out. He would want me to be who I am and be who God wants me to be. And uh, when I was finally able to go back to work, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I decided to take things slowly. And I took a job as part-time bookkeeper of a nonprofit organization that my father and I had started 10 years before that. And a man was running it. And so January 1 of that year, I started out in part-time bookkeeper. 12 days later, there was an earthquake in Haiti that killed 200,000 people. So I went from part-time to 24-7, and within two weeks, I was in Haiti. And then for the next several years, I was in Haiti, uh, at least part of every month for the next several years. And service is healing. Nobody ever told me that before. Hmm. I had no idea. But it did more for my grief and more for my healing than, than anything I think could have done you know, to get outside myself and focus on other people and, and give, and you know how cool God is. It's not like you can out give, right? Like you you think you're going there to help and holy cow, what you get back is so much more than you can ever, ever give. But there's, there's healing in that. Like, I think it is the greatest grief healer. What an amazing story. I can resonate with a lot of what you're sharing, just the part of we, we would never choose the suffering and the heartache, but if we embrace it with that perspective of why not me? Cause I'm, I'm a human being too. And the world is made up of blessings and suffering. And it's through that suffering, as you're pointing out, as you're sharing the wisdom and what you're what you've learned and and how you've moved forward it's only through that suffering that you have this wisdom and so you we can't gain that wisdom any other way and so i just love that especially the idea of yes just choose your perspective i mean there are some days in early on in the grief where your perspective needs to be this is painful and i need to grieve but but you do still have agency and the fact that you were able to find your purpose even beyond that is inspiring for for maybe those who are going through grief and suffering and pain and realizing that God wasn't done with you and he's not done with them either, right? Yeah. Nobody can relate to a widow like a widow. Nobody can relate to someone with cancer like someone who's had or has cancer. So yeah, we go through this crap in life, but if you can use it, how great is that? You know, you you can sympathize with people, you can empathize, but you can't really understand it until it's something that you've gone through yourself. And uh, we need each other. We need to know we're not alone, that we're not the only ones that are going through it. And then from there, uh, you wrote two books. Cry until you laugh. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And tell us a little bit about that book and why you wrote it. Well, I started writing. I went to the to the bookstore after I got my diagnosis on a Friday afternoon via a phone call, not the big lifetime moment where you're sitting across the desk huddled together with your husband, you know, and get the news delivered. It was this Friday afternoon phone call, blah, blah, you've got cancer, blah, blah, blah. And so I started writing um, partially as a way to update family and friends. Hey, I'm going to the doctor tomorrow, whatever. But my writing was so much more than that. And uh, before I knew it, 5,000 people were reading the emails that I was sending out. And so I continued to write. I was still writing when my husband was diagnosed and then through losing him. So I wrote for a little over a year. It's not all heavy. <laughs> it's funny. It's uh, um, serious, you know, in some parts and and whatever. It's just whatever I, I felt like writing when I felt like writing. And uh, it was so therapeutic for me. But cry until you laugh. I mean, I think it's just what you have to do. It's okay to cry, of course. I mean, when after my husband was diagnosed during that six weeks, there were times that I would just start crying. And he would just hold me and say, don't cry for me. You're the one staying here. I know where I'm going. Don't cry for me. And I was, oh my gosh, how can he be so strong? But he loved Jesus. He knew. He knew what was happening. He, he had a just such a piece about it. But yes, cry. I mean, I still cry sometimes. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with crying. It's not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign that you're not moving forward, you know, whatever. Crying is fine. But uh, but then laugh again. So cry until you laugh. Laugh again. And then you wrote a book, Love Is, and this chronicles your year-long journey of kind of the search of for what is the real meaning of love. Tell us a little bit about that book. Yeah. Well, I, um, I questioned love after losing my husband, the real meaning of love, because it seems to be a mystery in some ways. Uh, yet John says that God is love. So if God is love, it doesn't say God loves, it says that God is love. So love must be something that you can be. And, and I thought, you know, the whole WWJD, you know, what would Jesus do is great, but Jesus is different to everybody. Even among Christians, he's thought of differently to people, you know, depending on who you are, what you think, whatever. But love is universal. You know, it crosses all lines, all everything. Love is, is for everyone. And so if we knew what love was, if I could figure out what love is and know that I was doing it the right way, living it the right way, that's what I figured I needed to do. And so I took 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast. And I decided I would take one word a month and figure out what is love that is patient? What is love that is kind? The first thing I figured out is that there are 14 is's and isn'ts of love. So it took me a little longer than a year. But the things that I found out were things I have never heard before, changed my life, just rocked my world. And now I'm so passionate to share uh, the truths, the real truths about love that somehow elude us. What surprised you most in that journey that you learned about love? 
it was interesting because every month it took me the entire month to get to the conclusion, to really figure it out. And every month I thought I knew for for the most part, every month, I thought I knew what it was going to be. One thing that I I discovered is so often we hear that love is a two-way street and it's not. Love is a one-way street. Love is on you, period. You know, if I give you money and you give me a pair of jeans, that's a transaction. If I give you love to get love, that's a transaction. Love is not a transaction. Love is one way. You know, you bring that baby home from the hospital and you have 100% control. You decide when the baby eats, when the baby sleeps, when the baby gets a bath. Six, seven, eight months later, your Tupperware is all over your kitchen floor and pots and pans are banging and you realize you have lost all control and you will never get it back again. We only control ourselves. We have control over nobody else. And so if we give love, expecting love in return, we give it to get it, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment because you have no control over what comes back to you. And and it's not your job to figure out what comes back to you. You know, Jesus said, love God, love yourself and love everybody else. Doesn't say love God, love yourself, love everybody else only if they love you back or then you can expect something back. You know, just love. It's it's your only job. Just just love. And so um that was big to me because mm-hmm. uh I guess I thought of it kind of transactional before then. I think about Jesus said that we should even love our enemies. And so your point that is possible if we realize that love is a one-way street and we don't return the evil for evil, or if someone has hurt us or wronged us, we don't have to return that. Easier said than done, but so beautiful. Because if more of us took that approach and loved even when others were not loving us, imagine how that might transform those those others and how much more love might be produced in our world. To your point, I'm going to be a one-way street here and I'm going to live in love. I'm going to be love. Yeah. It's sort of a brain shift, right? Because we learn love from our parents, you know, the definition of love from teachers, from pastors, from whoever, Sunday school teachers, I don't know, whoever's in your life, right? That's where we learn it. And, and, uh, come to find out not everything we learned about love is, is truly love. And then there's all the words, you know, like there's this over um, arc of it all, this umbrella over all the 14 is, is, and is it's that, that, that is that, that, that love is one way and it's your only job. You know, you don't have to fix anybody. It's not your job to fix people. When you love that, that umbrella of love, it, it says that you let yourself be who you believe God created you to be. And you let other people be who they believe God has created them to be. You don't have to agree with everybody. You don't have to like everything that somebody is doing, but, but that's on them. That's on them. So let people have their own opinion. It's okay. You know, because because that's on them. Your your job is to love them. That's it. That's all you have to do. It's so freeing. There's no labels with love. You know, it's just 
Jeanette and Kim. And we, you know, we we like to put labels on people sometimes where, you know, oh, they're this, you know, we label them by their political party or label them by the church that they go to or label them by uh whatever. Well, we're not our labels. You know, those might be things that represent uh, something that we believe in, but that's not who you are. That's not who you are. You know, you think God puts a label on you? No, he calls you by name. He created you in his image, this special, incredible person like the Mona Lisa. If it ever went up for sale, it would be millions and I don't even know, millions and millions and millions of dollars, right? It's a one of a kind, just like you are one of a kind. Nobody has ever been exactly like you. Nobody ever will be exactly like you. And how precious and wonderful that is. But it's the same of everybody. Everybody is that precious and wonderful. And when we can embrace each other's uniqueness instead of trying to fix it or condemn it, there's no room for judgment and condemnation. There's no room for racism, ageism, any other kind of ism. It is, we are all walking on the same earth. We are all at the same level, no one better than another. And God doesn't love any of us better than another, no, no matter who we are and where we are. But his love is so huge that there is plenty for all of us and plenty to go around. And it's it's so much freedom when you realize that's your only job. That's that's your job, just love. That makes a lot of sense. And I love that idea that, yes, our only job is to love. Can you give us an example maybe of a story in your journey that brought you to a new understanding about love? Sure. Yeah. So uh, the one that I was dreading and I did out of order, everything else I did in order, but this one, I, I it's love keeps no record of wrongs because I thought, oh my gosh, you know, patients kind and be, you know, they all seemed like they'd be easy. None of them were, they were all way different than what I thought they were going to be, but love keeps no record of wrongs like that. You know, how does, how does that even work? We don't forget the things that happen to us. It's not like we are, we might forgive, but it's our memory's still there. So what could that possibly mean? Well, the month I was working on that, I got a phone call from a man in the US who wanted to see this water project that I'd been working on in Haiti and uh, wanted me to show him. So he brought seven other guys with him. So eight guys from the US. Um, I tapped two of my Haitian friends, both men, to come and translate, and they'd been working on the water project, so they knew it inside and out, and to go with us. And so we went out to the countryside. We got to where we were going to stay, and it was just this tiny little building with two rooms, and each room had four twin-size beds. So eight American men, two Haitian men, and me, right? And so, but we brought a couple cots, and we brought an air mattress. So I'm thinking, ah, oh, we're okay. You know, there's room in the rooms. We'll squeeze it in. It's all right. And uh, then the head guy of the American men called me over. He's like, Kim, Kim, can I talk to you? I'm like, sure. I walk over and he said, did you see the rooms? And I'm thinking, buddy, there's nothing else to see. You know, it's just this little tiny place. And then I thought, oh, he's asking me because he's going to think I want my own room. So I'll say, oh, it's okay. I'll sleep outside. And he'll say, oh, no, no. If anyone should sleep inside, it should be you. 
And then I'll say, well, I don't care if there's other people in my room. And he'll say, good, because there's only so much space. So I said, well, it's okay. I'll sleep outside. And he said, oh, good, good. Because we've got men on our trip that would not be comfortable with a woman in their room. And I'm thinking, what is going to happen in hot, hot Haiti when you only go into a room to sleep? You don't go hang out and play cards in there. I mean, there's no electricity and it's hot. You know, you stay outside as long as you can. What could I wear pajamas to bed? You know, like I just couldn't imagine what you thought would happen. But but I said I'd sleep outside. So I had to figure it out. And I saw this piece of plywood that was kind of held up by these wooden structures. And I thought, well, if I crawl under that, sleep under that, at least if it rains, I won't get wet. But I was scared to death because there are tarantulas and snakes and chupacabras, or I don't even know what lurks in the bushes of Haiti. And I am on the ground exposed to whatever it happens to be. And we are in the countryside. And I'm thinking, do they even have the anti-venom to whatever it is that's going to bite me? Or, you know, am I going to get airlifted to Miami in time to save a limb? You know, I was just scared. I just didn't know what was going to happen. I was so, so afraid praying every night that nothing would happen. So the first night I went to bed and the air mattress held air for about an hour. And then I was sleeping on gravel and it was so loud because dogs were barking and horns were honking. And finally that died down probably sometime after midnight. And then about 2 a.m., the voodoo drum started in the distance. And that went on for a couple hours. And then finally, I was able to doze off and get a little sleep. First night came and went, no problem. Second night, same thing. No air. I'm sleeping on gravel, the dogs, the horns, the voodoo drums. Finally, I'm asleep. But I woke up because there was something on my leg. And I was so afraid. I was so nervous to move too quickly. I wanted to needed to see what it was to see if I needed to run or what I needed to do. But I just wanted to not jerk, you know, so that it would immediately bite me or whatever. And so I, I slowly lifted my head and I slowly opened my eyes and it was a chicken. It was a dang chicken. And I didn't know whether to be happy because it wasn't something worse or mad because this chicken woke me up from the little bit of sleep that I was getting. I shoot it away, you know, whatever. Third Mm -hmm. night, everything went just fine. Just like the first night, nothing happened. Fourth night, same thing, no air, sleeping on gravel, the dogs, the horns, the food or drums. Finally, I'm asleep. And again, I woke up because again, there was something on my leg. And again, I was scared to death to find out what I'm, I don't like tarantulas and snakes. I mean, I'm just not a fan. I mean, some people do, I don't, and I just couldn't imagine what could be. So again, I slowly lifted my head and I slowly opened my eyes. And again, it was the dang chicken. And again, I didn't know whether to be happy or mad. I shoot it away. Well, that night we had chicken for dinner. So the fifth (laughs) night. Came and went without incident, always well. And I got to say, at first I was bitter. I was mad. Mm-hmm. I, w- I was thinking, man, I, I hope my sons wouldn't treat a woman like this. Yeah, I would yeah. think the same thing. Right? My goodness, like that, that the four men sleep outside. But yeah, I mean, I'm all about equality, but but that's not equal. I mean, mm-hmm. that was treating me as less than. And nobody stood up and said, 
shouldn't Kim be able to sleep inside, you know, whatever. But, um, I was, I was mad growing bitter. And then I thought, you know, bitterness only hurts me. They don't know I'm mad. They have no idea. So my blood pressure is going up. And so my body's changing, you know, things are happening to me, nothing's happening to them, you know, so I I can't be mad. I can't be bitter. And then I went, oh, geez, here all month long, I've been looking for praying about trying to find love that keeps no record of wrongs. And finally it dawned on me. So yeah, we, we don't forget the things that happen to us. We don't forget, but the narrative changes, the tone of the story changes. So instead of these rotten guys that did this rotten thing to me, it's, you know, kind of a funny story. And now I could literally sleep anywhere in the world and be just fine. And that is love that keeps no record of wrongs. That You just change the narrative of the story that we get to pick anyway, right? We pick the narrative. No, Nobody forces us to be bitter. And so that's what love does. Love that keeps no record of wrongs just changes the tone, changes, changes the narrative. Amazing. And you are courageous. I'm sure that just your courage level must have gone up sleeping outside in Haiti for four or five days straight. Amazing. Yes. I feel much more courageous now. There's no doubt about it. (laughs) Well, Kim, a lot of the women that listen are leaders in their workplace or in their communities or their churches. And so Thinking about love, what are some leadership lessons that you've learned through this journey? How would you say love should inform or or how does it impact our leadership? Yeah, it impacts everything about leadership, for sure. You know, the very first word right out of the gate was love is patient. And, you know, you know what patience is. I know what patience is, right? You're ready to run out the door for school and your three-year-old can't find his shoes and you don't lose your cool, you know, or whatever. You're showing patience, not honking your horn in traffic, whatever it is. But love that is patient is so different than that. And when you understand what love that is patient is, and you love that way, it changes how you lead. It changes, uh, it makes you so much a better leader. And so love that is patient would say, that of course you love everybody. So whoever it is that you're with, you love them in a way that you recognize that this is the most important moment of your life. What's in the past is in the past and what's in the future is yet to come. This is the moment. Be fully here. Be fully attentive. And I have to say, I stunk at this. Like this took me so much practice because it was so easy for me to think I was the greatest multitasker in the history of the world. And I could be thinking about a meeting I had later, who I had to get to soccer practice, what I had to pick up from the grocery store, be fully engaged at the same time. And it's just not true. It's just not true. So as I practiced this and stopped all the noise around me and just focused on the person who's standing in front of me that I love and show that love, my ears opened up. I heard things I never would have heard. Instead of assuming what somebody's going to say based on what you know about them or some label that you put on them or whatever, you're actually hearing what somebody has to say. And, and it's amazing because we are so much more alike than we are different. And so to really stop and, and listen and be fully present, that is love that is patient. 
That is so beautiful. I, I will sign myself up for that as well. I struggle at times to stay in the moment because, you know, my brain is yeah always thinking about what needs to come next. And, but people can tell when you're fully present with them. And I certainly desire to be that kind of a leader, that kind of a, a spouse, that kind of a, a mother and a grandmother that, that gives the people around me that sense that they are worthy of my time and they don't have to rush. That is really insightful just at the very beginning. I mean, and you've just picked the very first, like love is patient as leaders to think about being patient and being present is yeah, very inspiring. Last question I have for you, can love really change the world? And if so, like, like, why is this important? How can love change the world? I mean, absolutely. Because so much that we react to, uh, so much that we do has absolutely nothing to do with love. And love is who we should be. You know, God is love. We should be love. Love is, it's not an emotion like fear or excitement. You don't live in fear. You know, you might see something scary and then hear every bump in the night that night, but you don't live in that. You know, you don't live in every day is busy world. You don't live in excitement. You live in love. Love is who you are. Love is who you are. And so if you recognize that, that it is wrapped up in your being rather than just something that you feel for some people and not for others. And when you recognize that, that it's unconditional, like don't put conditions on love. You know, how often do you hear people say, I, I love everybody, but those darn Democrats or I love everybody. But those Republicans, you know, right? Well, then you don't love everybody. And there's no disclaimers in the Bible. There's no disclaimers about love. Love everybody. Love everybody. You don't have to like everybody. There's a difference. You don't have to like everybody. You're not going to go have coffee with everybody. You're not going to hang out with everybody. You know, there's only so many hours in a day. But love them for who they are. Let people be who they are. And when we do that, we're not taking sides anymore. We're not on a team. You know, we're just on team love. We're not saying, well, you know, there, there's these people and us, you know, we're not drawing lines on a map. We're not drawing a line in the sand and saying, well, you know, so long as you, you are this kind of a person, I will love you, but I'm not going to love everybody else. Well, if everybody loved everybody with real love, the kind of love that God is, the kind of love that God wants us to have for each other. There, there's no place for war. There's no, no place for, you know, if you think about the things that cause conflict in the world, the things that cause unhappiness and distress and, and whatever, it's because we're not loving. It's, it's the opposite of love. So if instead everybody understood the truth about love and, and, reframed their thinking and realize there's a different definition maybe than the one you've been taught and embrace it, the world would absolutely be a different place. Sign me up for team love. I mean, that's a team that, yes, we should all be on and that would definitely change the world. Kim, this has been great. What is the best way for people to connect with you? Where can they find you? Well, my last name's a little ridiculous because it has way too many letters. There's two R's, two E's, two L's, S-O-R-R-E-L-L-E, Sorrell, Kim Sorrell. 
My website is kimsorrell.com. Uh, the book that I wrote about my journey and that has the truth about love is called Love Is. Uh, it's a dark blue cover, big white love is. So it's easy to find. Uh, just typing in love is, I'm, I should come up. I'm on the social media channels and I love hearing from people. I have a, a free 14-day love challenge on my website. And anyone who wants to just come to my website and sign up for it, no strings attached, nothing for free, I will send you a WWLD wristband. Because if you can answer any question that way, what would love do? Then you know you're doing the right thing. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. And I um, look forward to reading the book and I will take that with me. WWLD will make life so much simpler. And just asking that question when it gets confusing or frustrating or hard, what would love do here? And then be like Nike and do it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Thanks, Kim. It was great chatting with you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Empowered Christian Woman Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it with other women in your network. For more information about me and the work that I do, check out JeanetteCochran.com. And I'd love to hear from you personally. Come join the conversation on social. You can find me on Facebook at Coach or Instagram at Jeanette.Cochran.